There is just no evidence that work from home and aggregate has reduced productivity. In fact, it's the reverse. We've had a surge in productivity growth. So I just think these claims that work from home is luring productivity in big data, you just don't see it. Welcome to the Disrupted Workforce, where we help courageous professionals explore, expand, and evolve in the future of work. Are you curious to understand how all these disruptions are changing how we work in our careers? Trying to self-assess and build an actionable plan to thrive in the future of work? Looking for research and insights from thought leaders to help you and your organization? Then this is the show for you and you found your tribe. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your hosts. TDW fans, we are excited to share our amazing guest with you today, Nick Bloom. To ensure you don't miss Nick or any of our top voices in the future of work, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen and also our YouTube channel. Nick Bloom has been researching working from home for 20 years. He's an award-winning professor of economics at Stanford University, co-founder of workfromhomeresearch.com, that's WFHresearch.com, and has consulted with hundreds of CEOs, managers, and even President Obama on remote working policy. Nick has been recognized in Forbes, Future of Work 50, the Bloomberg 50 Most Influential, and called America's best work-from-home expert by Business Insider. He's been all over the major national and international media outlets, CNN, BBC, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Economist. And if that's not all, Fortune Magazine called him the prophet of remote work. Now, Nick, it's really rare that there is one person who is the trusted source on a particular topic, but you are literally the guy. I mean, you are to remote work what Heinz is to ketchup, what Wim Hof is to cold plunge, what Italy is to expensive summer vacations, even what <laughs> Nate Thompson is to dad jokes. Nick, you are the originator. So it is such an honor to have you on the show today. Welcome to TDW. Well, Alex, thanks so much. You're making me blush. So uh, I don't know what else to say apart from that's an incredibly kind. It's probably the uh, most amazing introduction I've ever had. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Nick, let's dive in. Many may not be aware that you've been a work-from-home expert for 20 years, way before COVID, and you have a highly entertaining 2017 TEDx talk where it's titled, Go Ahead, Tell Your Boss You're Working From Home. And in that, you said, quote, I'm going to argue that working from home is a future-looking technology. I think this has enormous potential. Three years later, we're in the largest global work-from-home experiment in the history of humanity, and you are a genius. That might have been the biggest prediction you'll ever make in your life. But you have three kids, we have young kids, and before we get into all your research and insights, we just wanna ask you, the guy on work from home, how is work from home for Nick Bloom? What are your routines? And honestly, what do you struggle with? Thanks so much, you know, I, the pandemic was a pretty you know, uh, a weird situation in the sense that work from home is this very quiet back Topic. I've been working on it for a long time. You know, there are some folks into it, but it was mainly fully remote. The other thing is worth kind of remembering is pre-pandemic, it was basically binary. You either basically came in five days a week or you were fully remote. When I talked to work from home companies, it was all about saving office space. That was it. It was a really an office-based thing. And then the pandemic happens and where we've settled now and where I am at is hybrid, is has really taken off. 
So in fact, I was just scraping newspapers. There's about 2,000 daily newspapers in the US, and I was scraping them for the frequency of terms. And if you look before the pandemic, people basically talked about telecommuting, which now feels really dated. Nobody talked about hybrid. And as of basically, you see about beginning of 2021, hybrid really takes off. So that's me. I live a kind of weird hybrid lifestyle. I really like working from home, one-on-one meetings or small group meetings on Zoom or Teams. Teaching, on the other hand, is, is, is clearly better in person. It's hard to keep people focused on a, on a Zoom presentation, whereas if they're in the, in the room, I actually don't, particularly the undergrads, I don't let them open up laptops or stuff because, you know, they're kind of, uh, they're maybe on Facebook or Insta, Instagram or something. And so it feels like a, you know, a good in-person experience. Research seminars are best uh, in person. And most of my co-authors and folks and students I work with, you see them every so often, but often it's on Zoom. So that works really well. I'd say, you know, because I'm, I live on campus, I go in most days, but probably two thirds of my time is at home. So a classic day will be back-to-back calls from 8 a.m. to, you know, 11.30, go meet somebody for lunch in person, have a couple of meetings, then come back for two, three more calls. This week, you posted 30% of Americans still desire to be fully remote. Now, we thought this was staggering, and we learned so much from the pandemic that there's tons of benefits on working from home. And you've noted that the, big, the three biggest enemies to working from home are the fridge, the television, and the bed. So with those lessons of the pandemic behind us, what have we collectively learned about how to make remote work better? So great. So one thing to point out is people have really different preferences. So just to put numbers down, you're right, about 30% of Americans, and in fact, we surveyed 50,000 people globally. So it's, it's true, true globally. About a third of people basically want to be fully remote. If you look at who they are, they tend to be in their 30s and 40s with young kids. They have a pretty active social life you know, out of work, you know, have a bunch of friends and activities. They live somewhere where they have a, you know, a house. And so they're like, you know, I've been in my career for 15 years. I know what I'm doing, you know, but I have a lot of outside time. There's actually another 20%, the, the exact opposite. They want to come in every day. And if you look at those folks, they tend to be either in their 20s and, you know, they're, they're single, maybe they want to go yeah, into work to socialize. They really care a lot about mentoring, which is typically easier in person. And they're living in a small apartment, say, in New York or Lisbon, and you know, it isn't that easy to work from home. Or there may be empty nesters, kind of you know, mid-50s onwards. And then the third group, the biggest groups, about 50%, which actually would include me, are uh, <laughs> hybrid. So uh, you know, they want a mix of typically two, three days in the office, two, three days working from home. And so the future, I think, is for companies uh, and managers is you know, trying to fit folks to the role. So within teams, it's really hard to have a mix. But certainly, you know, you, you could be a company and say, look, our thing is fully in person. We know that's not for everyone. It's kind of what I call from a Brit, the Marmite strategy. So Marmite is this very salty uh, spread that we put on bread and 20% of people love it and 80% hate it. And it does very well. I mean, if you, you, know, you can keep 20% of people very happy and in good shape. And so for firms, I kind of think about what you want to do, match it to the task, but also be consistent. That's a great answer. You know, Nate actually asked me the other day as we were preparing to talk to you, he said, you know, what do you think? We've been doing remote work uh, almost exclusively for three years. And we both worked in corporate before that. Uh, Nate's in Denver. I'm in Miami. Today, I'm in Madrid, as a matter of fact. Uh, And um, we were talking about it. And I said, you know, there's so much that I love. I love that I can uh, have more freedom. I love that I'm not wasting time on the commute, which is a lot of people talk about. I love that I don't have this carbon footprint. But I really would love to spend 
you know, two days a week with you in the office, whiteboarding, grabbing lunch, having that experience. Uh, I do find it a little bit isolating working from home all the time. But I, I think what you broke down in terms of the different groups, their stages of life, their priorities, and I think also probably personality types have a really big role to play in all this. I mean, we keep hearing there are so many coders that are saying, hey, I never want to go back to the <laughs> office. You know, I enjoy, you know, just, just, just doing this work from home thing all the time. Alex, you're on point. Another thing that's interesting is if you look at that 30% that are fully remote, those that are graduates, which is probably covers most of your listeners, they actually typically are meeting in person about once a month. So maybe once every other month. So the typical thing would be, look, I'm fully remote, but maybe every six weeks, the team catches up for two days in you know Denver or uh, Barcelona, wherever it is. You have a couple of days of face-to-face and then you go back. And also you're out meeting clients, customers, other folks. So it's certainly not, that you're, you know, this heavily isolated situation. Nick, in a recent interview with CNBC, you talked about how remote work actually helps retention with diverse and minority groups, whereas pushing for a return to office or RTO can actually hurt a company's efforts for diversity. So can you tell us more about that? I'm not sure it's that obvious often to managers. So I'll just give you the data points and then we can discuss it. So again, we've been serving 10,000 people a month, you know, for three years now. And actually, uh, the future forum out of, used to be out of Slack and others have asked BCG have all asked similar types of questions. What you see is when somebody is a minority, which we define as in our surveys as less than 10% of your coworkers are in the same age bin, race, religion, politics, or gender, you have a slightly higher preference to work from home two, three days a week. So to give you an example, you know, I'm 50. Imagine I'm in a workforce of folks in their 20s. You know, they, they don't need to be a- aggressive or anything unpleasant to me, but they're all talking about, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess they're talking about TikTok. I, you know, I'm just so old at this point. I don't really know. What. My, my oldest kid is 20, and they're even using words like Riz that I have no idea what it means. So it, it, it just means you come into the office and it's just a, you know, people don't need to be aggressive. You just feel less belonging. The same is true if you're the only Democrat in an office full of Republicans or the only man in an office full of, you know, whatever it is, you can see. And so yeah. it means that if you're running an organization and you're forcing folks in five days a week, you're going to find employees that are minority in any of these dimensions that feel less comfortable. It's harder work coming in and they're more likely to quit. So DI, if you care about DI, you know, again, this is a very data-driven thing. You really don't want to be pushing for a five-day return or you're going to have to think about how you're going to fix that issue. Yeah. How about with neurodiverse and, and the disabled? You know, those are nuances of this conversation, but that it can be very different for those populations. Yeah, so another amazing benefit, I have less good data actually on neurodiverse, but in terms of people with physical disabilities. So again, this is an incredible spectrum. We had uh, two different data points. One is we ran a survey and we asked people, there's a set of questions that actually comes from RAN, which asks questions like, could you walk up 10 stairs? Could you pick up 50 pounds? Could you walk half a mile? And there's 20 activities and you can scale people on as you know zero to 20. And it's, it's really a continuing thing. What you notice is work rates for folks that have quite serious disabilities are far, far higher. They're three times the rate if they can work from home as if they have to go into their employees' workforce. So mm-hmm. look, if you struggle with a bunch of these activities, if you're allowed to work from home, it's massively easier. And it's not just getting around the commute. What you discover is there's other things like, for example, I have a friend that has real problems sitting in the same chair, an office chair, because she has issues with her back, but at home she can lie down or you know sit in a different and recline in a way that might be embarrassing in the office or 
you know, maybe has issues with like standard bathrooms, et cetera. We also see it incredibly at different data sources looking at US aggregate data. So I'm going to get very nerdy here, but you know, this is exciting for an economist. There's something called the Bureau of Labor Statistics that looks at all Americans. And what we have is data on what's called labor force participation, who's worked. And we see for folks without disabilities, it's been flat pre and post pandemic. For those with disabilities, it's risen by about 5% post pandemic. So that means if you aggregate it up, there's about 2 million more working Americans that have disabilities that have been able to work post-pandemic because of work from home. So these, these are like enormous numbers. That's it's fantastic. A, a huge effect. So this is an incredible dividend of work from home. And the fact is, it's become normalized, it's standardized, we all use software. If you're working in a team and somebody, say, has back issues and needs to work from home for a week or two, it's not really such a big deal. Whereas in 2019, it would seem like they're being left out and they're basically not working. You know, related to DEI is the term DEIB, which is diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And we think this bigger trend toward belonging is really, really important to the future of work. And it's really personal to me because as a kid, I always felt like an outsider. I didn't feel like I belonged. And all I wanted to to feel like I was part of the tribe, right? And now... Our Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, has shown a spotlight on this, and he's calling what we're experiencing in the U.S. now an epidemic of loneliness and isolation. And he just put out a paper in May, a six-pillar framework to increase social connection here in the U.S. Now, what's interesting about all this through the lens of uh, the return to office movement is that when the pandemic ended, one of the main attractions of that was community, culture, and connection. And we keep hearing from our clients and from the TDW community that getting people to participate in work-related social activities is harder than ever. And I just read an article this week in the Wall Street Journal called 501 and Done, No One Wants to Schmooze Anymore, talking about the fact that people are basically rushing out of the gate at five o'clock, that participation in these workplace activities is much, much lower than pre-pandemic levels. And that if you're going to start these things at all, you have to start them much earlier, but you know, don't expect a lot of people to show up. So I'm really curious to get your take. Is finding community and culture within the workplace no longer a priority, or is this just you know, another COVID disruption that needs to be reimagined? It's interesting. I saw that Wall Street Journal piece too, and I, I was actually thinking, you know, I often see these things in the media and think it's great anecdotes. I've interviewed a bunch of people. What, is that true in the bigger data? So, you know, we like to go out and survey 10,000 people and uh, it didn't seem unreasonable, but I was going to go out and collect a bit hard data on that. It's certainly the case that just if you look at days, 5% of days pre-pandemic roughly will work from home. That's now about 25%. So if you think you can't go and hang out after work, clearly there's been an increase in work from home. You know, 5X is just less days you can go in, particularly Friday. You know, uh, today happens to be Friday. You know, none of us are... Uh, in at least the you know, regular <laughs> offices. It was funny. I was talking at an event and someone said, well, in Australia, uh, everyone likes to come in on Friday because they like to go after work. And, you know, why would you want to work from home on Friday? Because that's the day that everyone stops at four and go, you know, goes out for a drink after work. Oh, that's what, so interesting. Well, you know, a couple of things. One is, I think in terms of mental health and loneliness, it looks like potentially hybrid is actually the sweet spot for the typical worker. Again, there's a lot of variation, so it's hard to talk about everyone. But if you look at averages, and I, you know, I've been involved in a couple of studies on this, people report uh, you know, work-life balance, job satisfaction, happiness tends to be highest when you're working, say, 
two or three days a week in person and two or three days a week at home. And the reason is, on the one hand, when you, you know, there's, there's these fantastic studies going back to Danny Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize in economics about 10 years ago, that are thinking people, fast and slow. Great exactly, yeah. exactly yeah. right. And he, he did a study back in, geez, this was like 2002. I mean, it's 20 years ago, when he collected data on what people like and dislike during the day. And the second most unpopular activity is work. Turns out the most unpopular activity in people's day is commuting. People actually hate commuting even more than they hate work. So turns out, not surprisingly, if you can like save people two days of commute a week, say, or three, that makes them happier. You know, it's less stressful. You know, you feel less exhausted. On the other hand, they also like connecting. So I would have thought on Vivek Murthy's point, for the typical person, they may be better off in, a, you know, in terms of mental health if they're in two, three days a week. I think if people are forced into isolation as they were during the lockdown, that can be problematic. Now in 2023, people that opt into fully remote, if they're happy with it, it's probably okay. You know, if you're, say, you know, living with a spouse with three kids and you, you know, you, you like to play, I don't know, pickleball with friends in the evenings and weekends, you probably feel very connected at home. And so you don't feel that you're missing Are, are a you lot. speaking about yourself there, Nick, as, uh, <laughs> with a spouse and three kids? <laughs> I, I don't actually play pickleball, but yeah. I, 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 <laughs> Nick, you talk about serving 50,000 people. You talk about serving 10,000 people. And my brain just keeps saying, can you just shed a little bit of light on that? Because it's just such a, a powerful thing to be able to access that much data. How are you guys getting that much data? There is a whole industry of what's called paid online surveys. So there are folks that sign up. They, are, you know, they get $2, say, for running an online survey that lasts about 10 minutes. And there's whole panels of these, hundreds of thousands of these folks. What we do is each month, we survey 10,000 people. They have to be between ages 20 and 69 and have earned $10,000 or more the prior year. We're looking at basically people in the workforce. And we ask them a range of questions. We also ask them what's called attention check questions. So one of the questions is, what's three plus four? And if anyone answers anything other than six, seven, or eight, we don't use their data. Like, I'm fine with bad maths. I just want them to be. And then we ask them, what color is grass? Uh, and they answer, you know, anything we accept yellow and green. We do not accept pink, you know. Uh, we ask them, how many large cities have you lived in in your life? Please click 33 if you're paying attention. And we also time how long you take to take the survey. And there, there are people that are ace speeders, they're just way too fast. And there are other people that take hours. And it's pretty clear there, you know, they're multitasking watching Netflix. And at the end of all this, we have a set of people who pass all the attention checks, take about the right amount of time. We then reweight based on age, income, education, and gender to the current population survey. Yeah, to get into the details, it turns out on these online panels, you have too many younger, graduate-educated women. You know, it's not obvious why, but you have to reweight it. At the end of that, the data looks really good. One of the things we do right at the end of the survey for the U.S. panel is we ask, who did you vote for in the 2020 presidential election? And we compare our numbers, reweighted to the actual county-level polling data, and it lines up extremely tightly. If you don't do attention checks and you don't reweight, the numbers don't look very good. So you have to be careful. But at the end of it, you get a pretty fantastic. You know, I've given you a long, nerdy academic thing, but we that was this. amazing. So totally this is why amazing. that was so wow. amazing to me is because I've often thought, you know, there's in your in Alex's. We're going to talk about this in a minute about how to get good data. But I've often thought, how the heck are you getting fifty thousand responses? What tools are you using? And then for you to go into the the rigor of what it takes to actually get good data. 
And how often we see things like a quick poll on LinkedIn and everybody thinks that's gospel. Well, no, that's actually not. <laughs> that's 33 people or 100 people. It's not 50,000 people with rigor. Yeah, so LinkedIn, I actually, you know, we were talking about posted for the first time in a year and a half. I put a poll on LinkedIn. LinkedIn polls, on the one hand, are free. They're fast. They're fun. On the other hand, it's not clear who your respondents are. So you're sampling people that respond on LinkedIn, which is, you know, not representative of the population. Is also not clear. I mean, you, you don't have much space in terms of when you ask the question, the options. You can only have 30 characters and yeah, responses. Yeah. So I worry a bit about how transparent and how well understood the questions are. Ideally, in a really well-designed survey, you are, and you don't have any attention check questions. So some people may just click any, you know, rubbish. So ideally, you'd ask a bank of eight to 10 questions, including the thing you're after in two or three ways, and only keep data from those people that seem to have a consistent thing. So, you know, if you want to know whether people like, I don't know, apples versus bananas, you may ask, you know, would you rather an apple or a banana early on? And then later in the survey, ask, would you rather sliced apple or sliced banana? It's kind of the same question, but if you put them apart, we, people that have different answers, you begin to think, look, they're just clicking the thing rapidly to get through. Thank you for being data-driven and rigorous and then helping everyone on our show understand that that's the difference between quality data and what could be garbage. I just want to ask you, what, what does good look like now? We've been in it a while. And then what are the mistakes that leaders are still making with RTO? I, I think there's a range of policies that are defensible. I think the hardest one to defend is five days a week in the office for four professionals and managers that can work from home. So just to set the scene, globally, again, in the US and Europe, about 60% of people have to come in every day. So they're probably not your listeners, but you know, go to the person working at McDonald's or you know, the security at the front desk or you know, food service or accommodation, et cetera. So these folks, their job means they have to come in. Let's set them aside. We're looking now at the remaining 40%. They typically are university grads. Of them, you know, mostly, or if not all of them, can work from home one, two days a week. So for that group, managers and professionals, I think one big mistake is to force them back to the office five days a week. Some of them may want to, and that's okay. But forcing people back, particularly on Fridays, is super costly. It's costly because of DEI we discussed earlier. It's costly because, to, be, to be honest, it just unnecessarily pisses people off and doesn't generate <laughs> any improvement in performance. So I, I, I have a huge randomized control trial. We took 1,600 people in Trip.com, which is a big, uh, one of the big three global travel agents, and two divisions, and they randomized them by even or odd birthdays, whether you got to work from home for two days a week or not. So if you have an even birthday, you're coming in five days. If you have an odd, you're coming in three, you get to work from home Wednesday, Friday. We tracked them for six months. At the end of it, we find performance is totally flat, no difference. We have a whole range of performance metrics, including you know, lines of code, promotions, evaluations, et cetera. The big difference you see is folks allowed to work from home two days a week saw a 35% lower quit rate. So, you know, they wow. pulled it out. They took away from that. There is no impact on performance of letting people work from home one, two days a week, but it keeps employees a lot happier. So I think the one thing to say that is wrong as just a management mistake is pushing people back to the office for five days a week. Other, I mean, I'll pause there. There are other things that are less obvious and more nuanced, but that is a, that is a, a quick win. If you're trying to do that now, let them work from home Friday. It's just not worth it. It's like you're annoying all your employees generating. If you're a big company, you're generating, honestly, bad press. You know, these companies are just being raked over in the media for what? For really honest, for nothing. Yes. I want to take this back just for a second to geography because you were talking really about the issues uh, around pay and geography. 
But geography is also an issue for return to the office. Now, you were kind of uh, uh, shining a light on Zoom very recently and all the headlines about, oh, Zoom is pushing everybody back to the office and how all those headlines were actually highly incorrect. They were only actually wanting people to come back two to three days a week if you were within 50 miles of the office. That was the actual true story about their return to office effort. But it brings up a broader implication around these two classes of workers, right? Those that are proximate to the office and those that are not. And I think this is something that could have broader implications and could create some FOMO between the various groups, could create some confusion around, you know, how close or how far do I want to live from the office based on my desire to go to the office? How do you see this playing out and how do leaders manage culture for two different groups if this geographical boundary becomes the new way of judging who goes and who doesn't? You're right. That is a, it is a really difficult situation. So let's go back to Zoom, start off there. So the thing that I was like uh, amused slash horrified by was how the media headlines were completely disconnected with what happened on the ground. So I was actually in Zoom about a year, in fact, almost exactly a year ago, I had lunch with Eric Yuan and already back in, you know, this was September 2022. They were coming back to the office, most folks, two, three days a week. They already were operating hybrid. At some meeting about a couple of months ago, they formalized this. The media, all the headlines were like, Zoom cancels work from home. I mean, that just wasn't true. What Zoom did explicitly, as he said, is for people that live within 50 miles, you have to come in two days. And for people that live further than 50 miles, there's no requirement. So you could have had the media headline say, Zoom allows people to work from home three days a week if you live within 50, five if you live further away. So then on the on the policy, I think it, it, it actually made sense. They have the offices. They are hiring people in the Bay Area. They're paying high wages. So, you know, if they're to go fully remote, they should get rid of their offices and move to national global hiring. But they're not doing that. So given they you know, have all this office space and have these highly paid, skilled folks, they should get them in probably to meet in person for a couple of days a week. The problem, as you point out, is this 50-mile thing. That seems, I think it's reasonable in the short run because I don't see a better alternative. Imagine you just said everyone has to come in two days a week and you have somebody living 300 miles away. That seems ridiculous. So you think, fine, the 50-mile thing is probably a reasonable thing to do. The problem is in the long run. This is not a policy that's sustainable because, you know, I live 40 miles away. I figure out if I move 50 miles further from the office, I can now escape coming in. And of course, that's going to start to happen. Yeah. So this is, you know, in economics, we call it the law of unintended consequences. Whenever you regulate or the government gets involved in anything or firms regulate, they find that, you know, people behave in unintended, at least as far as they're concerned, ways. It's predictable, but unintended. So longer run, I, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky one. Longer run, I think if I were them, I would say, look, these teams are going to be hybrid one year from now. If you're going to stay in this team, we would like to come in two days a week. And you know, if you're living more than 50 miles away, we'd suggest you move. If not, there are different teams that are going to be fully remote. They will have different roles. And try and map out a glide path towards that. The thing to avoid is to do what Grindr did. So Grindr, what, two weeks ago, announced you've got to come back and it's going to be starting one, you know, two weeks from now or three weeks from now. I mean, that was just no warning. So I get that you may say we have offices, we want hybrid. But you have to give people, say, a year's notice so they can adjust their lifestyles and also give them a plan B. If I don't really don't want to come, is there a role for me in the firm that is fully remote? And it may be a different role. You may, say, not be managing people because it may be hard to manage in-person people if you're fully remote, but there's some place for me in the firm. I have to ask you this question, and I have no evidence to back this, no data to support what I'm about to say, but it does seem like a sneaky possibility 
is it possible that some leaders would use a callback, an RTO that is five days a week as a way to clean house? Hey, we're just going to call everybody back. It's going to call the herd. <laughs> we're going to get a bunch of people to just leave. and Not have to pay them unemployment? Will, yeah, it's going to optimize things. But I just had that thought when I was reading some of these things like, hmm, that's kind of a sneaky way to get rid of some people. No, they wouldn't. Really? Yes. No, yeah, yeah, sorry. This is like, you know, uh, ridiculous fake British uh, surprise. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, the, 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 uh, the most obvious example of this was Elon Musk. So Elon Musk, when he took over Twitter, this is going back uh, about a year ago. Uh, I remember at the time, because on a Tuesday, I can't remember what week, I just remember it was a Tuesday. He said, right, everyone's going to, they, they were fully remote more or less at the time. He said, everyone's going to come back to the office five days a week. And I put out some comment, I think on Twitter, but certainly on LinkedIn saying, you know what, this is going to lead to, you know, 10, 20% quit rates because people just are not going to like it. And, you know, the social media is full of this. On Thursday, he said, we want to reduce headcount by 20%. And I was like, aha, you know, uh, <laughs> this is where it's coming from. And Grinder, actually that same playbook. So Grinder basically, I believe, wanted to reduce headcount, was also had a unionization drive and was trying to beat back on unionization. So Nate, you're Totally right. I think often it is a way for managers to kind of shift out a bunch of employees. The obvious downside of it is who leaves is not random. In fact, you have what I would call you know, negative selection. So imagine you have 100 people in your firm, and let's say 25 are totally high performers. Everyone knows they're high performers that you know, were regarded in the industry. Now they're really upset to being forced in. They're the ones that can easily find another job. Maybe the other end, there's 25 people that are kind of you know, struggling a bit. It's known maybe that, you know, their outside contacts aren't great. They're the ones that may threaten to quit, but, you know, you're not actually going to leave until you find another job. So it's kind of like, you know, you could also downsize if the, you know, the CEO came in every day and insulted everyone and turned the air conditioning up to incredibly hot or, you know, put worms in the lunch. There's, there's many ways to be nasty to employees. It just doesn't <laughs> normally seem like a good idea. Um, I, I, so, yes, you're right. It's, it, I, I'd say it's kind of out of the, desperation playbook that, um, you know, maybe if you're horribly sure, I don't know the cash situation of these companies. Elon Musk, I suspect, also has this view that people that want to work from home are kind of, you know, lazy or something. I don't know. I mean, that's just not, I've seen in, in our data in big sum data, it's just not true. So, I don't think you, you and Elon would see eye to eye on this issue, Nick. <laughs> no, I mean, I, 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 I'll, I'll give you another a, a big, a fantastic, big, big picture data point. So in America, work from home's gone up fivefold pre-post 2020. So we know that there's been a big surge in it. If you look at the national productivity growth date in the US, it was 1.2% for the five years running up to the pandemic. So that's 2015 to 2019. It's increased to 1.5% on average since the pandemic began. And that is incredible because that's a period we've had a lockdown, a you know, global pandemic, all kinds of horrible things. So there is just no evidence that work from home and aggregate has reduced productivity. In fact, it's the reverse. We've had a, a surge in productivity growth. So I just think these claims that work from home is luring productivity in big data, you just don't see it. So you may believe that, but you know, I, I, Nate, on your point, if it were me, if I was going to downsize, I'd probably want to pick the people that I may suggest leave rather than instead having them pick because you're going to find the highest performers yes. going to be the ones that may leave first. Not entirely, but they have the best outside options. So, you know, there's going to be a positive selection of people out the front. Yeah. And, and in general, on the disruptive workforce, we always say treat people with respect, you know, get care, deeply care about people, take a human centered approach. You don't have to come in with these 
games and you know just damage your culture in the process. It's just ridiculous. Anyway, thank you for that. Let's talk about the four-day work week. Your research is clear. Fridays are dead. Fridays are dead, ladies and gentlemen. Mondays are on life support. Tuesday through Thursday is a mixed bag. People are trying to figure it out. And then work sometimes spills into the weekend. What are your thoughts on the four-day work week? So it's really interesting topic. I it, It's complicated. So what I'll say, there are actually four versions of the four-day week. So version one is what I call changing your shift. So imagine that you work typically 40 hours a week. You're doing, say, eight hours for five days. Why not just work longer but for less days? Fantastic. That, you know, that's called shift compression, and it saves you a day of commuting. Some people like it. They, they want to save a day and travel. Others say well, they'd rather get home in time to see their kids. But that's certainly an option. Version two is called part-time. I now say, look, uh, Nate, I'm going to pay for four days rather than five days a week, and you just have to come in for four. Again, that's great. Some people want to work part-time. Some don't. Version three is work from home, the one you just mentioned. So, you know, when you're four-day week, what you may mean is that folks are basically working from home on Friday, and so the office has a four-day week. Again, totally in favor of that. I you know, actively promote that. So those three are all flavors of the four-day week that are realistic, firms should offer if they can, and makes a lot of sense. Version four is the magic version. It's much less obvious if it exists. I'm kind of skeptical, but, you know, there is research going on. This is the claim that, look, you can cut one day a week of work and still produce the same output. The reason I'm kind of skeptical is after having talked to a bunch of managers, they say, they're like really insulted by the idea. They say, you know, you're implying that I'm just totally wasting a day a week already. Like, you know, if I, they'll say things like, if I could magically reduce a day a week of work, I tell you I would. I don't want to come in any more than anyone else. You know, do you think I enjoy coming in every day and just sitting in pointless meetings? And they say, yes, I've read that you get rid of pointless meetings, but they say, I never have a meeting. It's not like my diary says, meeting 8 a.m., meeting 9 a.m., meeting 10 a.m., 11 a.m., pointless meeting. Oh, yeah, let's get rid of pointless meeting. You know, you only know they're pointless in, until after you've had them. And indeed, there's studies in economics going back like 100 years to munitions factories in World War I, showing that output tends to move pretty linearly with hours up till about 60, 70 hours, and then people start to get fatigued. So, you know, this whole working smarter rather than harder, it's a great anecdote. It sounds, you know, fantastic on short tweets. In practice, I've not seen any evidence that you can literally magically save this time. Nick, it's, it's very clear from all your research that working from home and hybrid work is impacting our, our well-being and our productivity in, in wonderful, wonderful ways. That being said, I think work-life balance still remains really, really elusive for some. And we know that in this always-on world that we've been in for quite some time now, that the line between our work and our personal lives has become increasingly blurred, maybe more than ever. And now in a recent post, you, you actually posited that maybe this problem is perhaps more about self-discipline and personal boundaries than the demands of our employers. I would love if you could share a little bit more about that. Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting. What you see in the data is all of us that are on hybrid uh, and remote have moved a bit more to what I call a student day. So I think of my undergrad students, they'll often, you know, work, not work for a couple of days and pull all nighters. They kind of are on and off and they, they move things around. What we saw, for example, in the experiment I did with trip.com, where we randomized whether people got to work from home two days a week or not. We saw on the days that employees were at home, these are Wednesday and Fridays, They'd work about two hours less a day. And 
you think, well, maybe they're, you know, they're, they're producing less. Their performance was pretty constant. We found out they made up for it on other days of the week and the weekends. And when you interviewed them, they said, look, if I'm at home on a Wednesday, that's like a great day to go to the dentist, to go shopping, you know, maybe play around the golf, pick my kids up. And I happily make up for it on Tuesday night by working a bit extra on Thursday night or over the weekend. So I think a lot of this is greater flexibility. If you want to play, you know, if you want to go play golf or go shopping, it's quiet on a Wednesday morning. And you may think I'd rather do that then and lose two hours Tuesday between you know, 6 and 8 p.m. and I might have been watching TV or something. And so I think as long as managers are not forcing it, it's more like undergrads. Or you remember back in university where you choose when you worked and you know, choose when you don't work. So it's not obvious. I know there are some people that complain their manager emails them at 10 p.m. at night, and that's not ideal. That's not what we're looking for. But some of this spreading of work-life balance is people choosing to do that because they like the flexibility. Speaking of undergrads, you're teaching the best and the brightest at Stanford every day, and many of them are about to enter this disrupted workforce. So what do these next generations want? What do we who are in the workforce need to know about what those generations want and need out of the workplace? So again, really interesting. I, when you talk to like undergrads, they typically want, you know, I have two of them, my, you know, my, my two orders are undergrads. They typically, in a job, will want a reasonable amount of in-person time for mentoring, for socializing. You know, they often don't live in particularly fantastic, think of a dorm room. I mean, that is not a great place to work from. So it's not that they're wanting to be in five days a week, but I would think a typical person at age bracket maybe wants to come to the office four days a week, maybe three, which means that if you're a firm, your work uh, from home strategy affects who you are. So at one end, if you're Airbnb, you're fully remote, you're probably going to struggle a little bit to hire you know, fresh college grads. You're more looking at being really appealing to 30 and 40-year-olds that are a bit more experienced and aren't looking for so much in-person time. On the other hand, if you're, say, Apple, and you're having people come in three, maybe four days a week, that could well appeal to you know, 21-year-olds straight out of college. So your, your kind of work-from-home work strategy also goes with who you want to hire, and obviously that relates to product mix, et cetera. Nick, we are going to take you into a speed round to wrap things up. Five <laughs> questions. Try to answer them as quickly as possible, a minute or less. Whatever comes from your gut is, is what we would love to hear from you. And Nate is going to kick us off. <laughs> What's one thing almost everyone is getting wrong about work from home in this hybrid workplace? I'm not sure everyone's getting wrong, but there's certainly... Uh... A lot of folks, I think there's one rule that, you know, fits them all. I, I think we just got to appreciate there's enormous variety across individuals and firms. So you have to be consistent within teams. You can't really have a team of 10 people where there's, you know, a mix. It's hard to manage. But certainly across teams and across firms, we're going to see a big spread forevermore. Looking back to your hypotheses before the pandemic on the rise of working from home, what has surprised you most now that your predictions have come true? In other words, what didn't you see coming? I, I, I didn't know the predictions would come true. I mean, just to put this in, <laughs> to put this in context, uh, I ran, you know, I had a couple of surveys and one big randomized control trial back in 2010 to 2012, but that was in a company in China. So I was like, well, work from home increases productivity. People are happier. That's great. But who knows whether it transfer. Was the company so, in Wuhan? No, it wasn't exactly. <laughs> Fortunately not, no, for them. But, you know, it's like, uh, you never, you know, you have, it's like scientists have this model of, you know, climate change or something, and then it starts happening. And like, wow, you know, mo mostly it was right. There's a bunch of stuff. I certainly, for example, did not see hybrid, you know, just to be clear. 
the experiment was four days a week work from home. It seems to it's so obvious now in 2023 that for many people, hybrid is actually the way to go. You know, two days a week at home, let's say. And, but I'm, back then, it was really all or nothing. But yeah, I've just been amazed that it worked. I mean, you know, in some ways, thank God that it did because the US economy would have collapsed. I mean, if you go back, actually, if work from home had been a total failure in 2020, we'd have probably had to call people back a lot faster. Infection rates and death rates would have been higher. So working from home probably saved hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people's lives because it meant we could basically vaccinate people, you know, far, you know, quick enough before many, you know, I, I didn't actually get COVID pre-vaccine. I, I don't know what others did, but I was fortunate enough that I could work from home, got vaccinated as fast as I could. I did then catch it, probably had it twice, but it wasn't nearly as severe as it would have been otherwise. Uh, this next one is we're seeing roles like head of remote, head of hybrid work. They, um, they popped up because of the pandemic and now they seem to be sticking around, but are those going to be sticky or here to stay? No, I think they'll be permanent. They may end up getting swept into HR. You know, the CHR or CPO is certainly going to be focusing on that. The pandemic has really bigged up HR. I mean, you know, if you're in HR, uh, it's become a much bigger deal. Typically, pre-pandemic, it wasn't clear that they'd always have a seat at the executive table, the head of HR now. They're pretty critical and it really matters. And also, someone's telling me the other day something pretty interesting is that real estate in number of companies, they've moved the decision from real estate from out of the CFO, from it being a financial decision, to under the C- to the CHR. Because, of course, your work from home decisions now critically impact office decisions and real estate. So HR has just become a much bigger deal. And in some ways, it makes sense. If you look at the US economy, go back 100 years, the most valuable assets were typically land and buildings and equipment. Now, the most valuable assets are human capital individuals, much more than land and buildings. And so HR has been you know, promoted and this pandemic has pushed them up another level. That's fantastic. Nick, as we've talked about on this episode, one of your key points is don't trust bad data. <laughs> <laughs> what are a couple of things we should all be doing to conduct better surveys and also discern the quality of the articles and research that we're digesting? Yes, yeah, so on the latter, there was actually a post today by Brian Elliott on LinkedIn again on this, which is, I would look at the methodology of surveys before you uh, check the results. And he said, you know, caveat emptor, if the result seems implausible, you know, if 74% say they co- co- their team includes an alien, you should be suspicious how they, uh, you know, how they conducted that survey. So I think for all of us having a methodology section that's larger than just one paragraph, like, you know, some sales pitch on how we poll all Americans. For example, one of the mistakes to do is, is have a really fuzzy sampling frame. So imagine yeah, I'm always skeptical of surveys that say target decision makers or IT professionals, because the way this works, I know having been on, involved in this is you send out these surveys paying people two bucks, you know, $2 per response. And they have these initial filtering questions. And they ask, you know, are you a decision maker? If you say yes, you get to complete the survey and get the $2. If you say no, you get filtered out. Now, anyone that does these things regularly knows that. So if you get one of these survey questions through, you know if you're a professional survey taker, you always say yes. So, you know, if you're asking, are you a decision maker? You have some decision makers in there, but a lot of professional survey takers that probably honestly are. And so what you instead want to do is ask about, you know, age, income, education, gender, and then probably run with the whole lot and reweight at the end. Because, you know, there are just ways that it's just bad design. And I see these surveys when they say, we, you know, polled 2,000 CEOs and they said X. I'm like, 
I'm really suspicious that you're getting CEOs for two dollars. You just said at the beginning, <laughs> are you a CEO? Yes, no. You know, any any undergrad like my my son, one of his friends, to get in-game credits for Clash of Clans used to do this and would just claim he was whatever they asked. And so he's in all of these surveys. And so instead, you'd asked about age, income, education. He'd be more likely, I suspect, to respond accurately because that's on the underlying poll. So it's harder to lie. And then you could have reweighted up or down these characters. I'm just imagining a seven or eight figure CEO going, yeah, I really want that $2. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you, do, you do interestingly get some quite highly paid people because oh I think they're on, they're on like lunch breaks or you know, on the subway or something. But you're right. CEOs are very hard. We have a separate survey with the Atlanta Fed, Chicago and Stanford University that aims at CEOs, CFOs, but they're mostly 100, 200 person firms. And we call them up and you have to, you know, it's a very much different process of handholding and speaking to them. And, you know, it has to be fast. It's just, you're never going to get, you're right. They, they're not looking for no. in-game credits on Clash of Clans <laughs> or whatever it is, or, you know, a thousand Southwest Airlines miles, which is what a bunch of this stuff is. Yeah. Nick, last one. You think about this every day. You have kids. We have kids. So definitely as parents. Uh, we, this is weighing heavy on us, you know, what's work going to look like. And we would love for you to say, what do you think work is going to look like for our kids 10 years from now? I really enjoy a couple of thoughts. One is, I know every parent is like very much focused on CS. In some ways, yes, but it's also worth knowing that computer science is great, but I'm not sure I'd overload on it because, you know, I noticed being in Silicon Valley that these things come in cycles. So it's a very valuable skill, but it has what I would call a very high depreciation rate. So I would probably, as parents, make sure your kids have a broader base, which is not just that their skills are useful now, but 20 years from now, they can pick up new ones. So, you know, funded writing, being able to write, uh, you know, maths, decision-making, analysis, data analytics, for example, is something that's hard for computers to do, actually. You know, 20 years from now, they'll still be struggling to come up with interesting, quirky problems and results. They tend to just to data mine, and you find these correlations. You're like, well, yeah, sure. There's correlations in the data, like education and income are correlated, but that's not very exciting. That's one thing. The other thing that's interesting is a whole line of research from David Deming at Harvard about the importance of social skills. So there's a similar theme, and it says, look, if you roll things out, computers are taking over more and more of activities. What can't they do? They're terrible at social skills. I mean, no one wants to be managed by a robot. So, you know, for kids, uh, social skills are also important. And here are data showing in the labor market, that's getting rewarded more and more. So you go back 30 years, you know, maths was important, and maybe social skills didn't matter as much now employers really care about this stuff because what people are doing is managing and dealing with clients more and less just raw processing, which has been pushed onto machines. We couldn't agree more. Uh, this theme of what is human intelligence in the age of AI and understanding that our interpersonal skills and our relational skills are, are more valuable than ever is something we talk about a lot. So I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased to hear you reinforce that point. So hopefully, hopefully we're all you know we're all three real people. We've all passed the Turing test by this point. <laughs> <laughs> Where is the best place for folks to find you, Nick? Yeah, LinkedIn. I, I've ended up now just. I'm, I mean, I used to do Twitter as well. I still do a bit, but LinkedIn has become the place for all of this discussion. I think having you know known anonymity really helps because you have to stand behind what you say, and it prevents. You know, I used to find on Twitter. There would be like, you'd say something, and there'd be a really negative comment by someone calling themselves, I don't know, Flying Squirrel, and you've no idea who that yeah. is. Whereas, uh, <laughs> be like, you know, that some of them are pretty rude and unpleasant. So, LinkedIn, for sure, that's where, that's where I tend to be based now. Nick, so what makes you so compelling is you are passionately in love with what you're doing. It's oozing out of you, and we love it. 
And here's why that matters. This is our chance to make work better for everyone. And you are the voice of that in a powerful way. You're opening this door that's kind of breaking down traditionalism and saying, hey, this is working. Life is better. Productivity is better. Quality of life is better. Work-life balance is better. Let's stay on this path. Let's keep going. Yeah, we need to adjust. We need to find our way. But you're the voice saying this is working. And you're the person with rigor, with a data-driven approach, with a team that's making that practical and real that all of us can grab onto and build this into our organization. So thank you for being you and being that powerful voice in the future of work. Hey, Alex, thanks so much. It was a lot of fun being on. It was fantastic. So thanks again. Thank you for joining us on this journey. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. To learn more about this episode, go to disruptedwork.com forward slash podcast, where you can find show notes and key details about the episode, our guests, and how to connect with us. Our website also contains additional resources for learning, including our future work mindset model and action plan. The best way you can support the disrupted workforce is to subscribe to our show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To help others thrive in the future work, spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing your favorite episodes with the people you care about. Disrupt yourself to unlock your future.